Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Spencer Lodge podcast. And the reason you're listening to this is that you know that we have great guests on the show. Can you please do me a favor before we start? Could you please like? Could you please subscribe? Could you please leave five-star ratings? Could you please leave positive comments? Can you please tell your friends as well about this podcast? Because the more people that see it, the better it's going to get coverage. And you know what? The more lives are going to be impacted by it. So please do me a favor and do that. On today's episode, right, we had a guy that came on our podcast some months ago who my audience, which is you, said was one of the most epic, touching and moving stories you'd ever heard. So if you can remember, there was a guy called Nick Yaris on death row for over 20 years for a crime he didn't commit. Well, today, the guest on the Spencer Lodge podcast is a criminal defense lawyer that fights to get people off of death row. And one of his most successful journeys and outcomes was the famous story of Anthony Graves, who was on death row for 18 years for a crime he didn't commit. And he got him out and he got him off. And today, as we are filming, it's the 10-year anniversary of Anthony Graves' release from death row. Please pay attention to this one, all right? Because you're going to be listening to an epic human being that literally has watched people put to death, but he's saved people's lives too. Let's welcome David Dow. Cue the music. David, I'm so delighted to have you on the show today. We had a guest on our show before that was on death row for a long time. Our audience was absolutely spellbound by his story. And we got a story from a perspective. And today, I'm so glad to have you on the show because I want this other perspective. I want to learn about what goes on in the United States of America, this superpower that has, you know, democracy and logic and sense and reason and justice and how we can see so many examples of people that get themselves into death row for crimes they didn't commit, sit there for years and years and years. And I'm sure there's no smoke without fire. But before we get started, so that everybody knows exactly what you do, would you just take just one minute to introduce yourself and tell us your journey? I I will, Spencer. Thank you very much for having me. And I'm really looking forward to our uh, conversation. I teach at the University of Houston Law Center, and I've taught there for coming up on 30 years. And most of my courses are in the constitutional area, but I have also for 20 years run a death penalty clinic. And in our death penalty clinic, I have a team of lawyers and students and interns, and we represent in that clinic people who are on death row at every stage of their appeals. So we represent them in state court appeals and in federal court appeals, and we represent them all the way up until the time of execution, if the execution happens. In the year that I've been running the clinic, we've represented something like 115 or 120 um, people. All but three have been men. We've represented three women in that time. Most of our clients, almost all of our clients are in Texas, but not exclusively. We've had three or four in Florida. Uh, we had one in New Mexico. So we've had a few in other states. I'm familiar, obviously, with how 
the process works in other states, but most of our clients have been in Texas. Texas is, of course, where it's happening in the death penalty world. If you're playing anywhere else, you're still dealing with human lives, but in terms of the machinery that you're opposing, you're playing in the minor leagues because the machinery in Texas is just so gruesome when it comes to chewing up and spitting out uh, these inmates. So uh, that's what I've been doing. And as I say, I'll probably end up using a lot of first person singular pronouns today when we're talking just because I'm in the habit of doing that. But I just hope that you and your listeners will hear the word we every time I say the word I, because almost all of my cases involve a team of at least three or four people. Okay, so let's deal with some basics here. So for the for the rest of the world, how many states have the death uh, the death sentence? The answer is that as of today, I believe there are still 31 or 32 states that have a valid death penalty law on the books. But that's actually very misleading because the overwhelming majority of the executions in the United States, 80 five, 90% of the executions in the United States happen in just about six or seven states. So there are a lot of states that have a death penalty that's available, but they don't use it. So for example, New Mexico recently abolished the death penalty and that was big news in the death penalty world. Well, that is obviously an important achievement if you're lobbying to get rid of the death penalty, but at the time New Mexico had one person on death row. When Connecticut got rid of the death penalty, they had three people on death row. So the death penalty is something that exists in 60% or more of the states as a legal matter, but as a practical matter in terms of states that are actually carrying out executions, it's five or six or maybe seven. And why is Texas so different to the rest? What, what makes Texas the kind of like the, the, the showpiece of this? That is an excellent question. And I'm going to give you the answer that I always give, and it's going to sound like I'm being flippant. And so then I'm going to back up and tell you why I gave you that answer. The answer that I give to people when they say, why does Texas Texas execute so many people? I say, well, Texas executes so many people because Texas executes so many people. And what I mean by that is that the death penalty system is a big, complex, lumbering system. There are a lot of moving parts. There are district attorneys, there's the attorney general's office, there's the governor's office, there's the prison staff at where death row is, there's the prison staff at where the executions are carried out, there are the defense lawyers, there's, a, there's the judges, the federal judges, the state judges, there's a lot of moving parts. And so in a lot of my cases, we might file an appeal for the inmate three, four, five days before the execution happens. We identify some new claim that we want to pursue. In any state that hasn't carried out an execution, say in five or 10 years, when I file that appeal three or four or five days out, the whole system is gonna grind to a halt. The lawyers in the attorney general's office are not gonna have seen that before. The judges aren't gonna have dealt with it before. The prison authorities aren't gonna know what to do with it. In Texas, everybody's an old hand at this. If I file an appeal three hours before the execution, it doesn't matter. The attorney general has seen it. They're gonna file a response very quickly. It's going to go to a judge. The judge is not going to panic because the judge has seen it before. And so what I say is that the reason Texas executes so many people is because it executes so many people. It's become very efficient at it. It's like any activity. The more you do it, the better you get at it. Now, what that doesn't 
give you any insight into is why did Texas first start executing so many people? I mean, how did it start out becoming this machine? When I first started representing death row inmates more than 20 years ago, Texas and California and Florida all had death row populations of about the same size. They all had death row populations of about 400 people. Now here we are 20 years later and California has a death row population of over 700. Florida still has between three and 400. Texas has 250. What is the difference? Well, the, dis the, the difference is that over that time, Texas has executed 4,500 people and California has executed about three or four. And so the reason that Texas continues to execute so many is because it's executed so many. Why did it start executing so many? Nobody knows the answer to that question. There are some people who say that it's the whole Wild West mentality. There are some people who attribute it to the fact that the decisions in Texas are not made centrally. They're made locally. So individual local district attorneys make the decision rather than somebody in a statewide office. There are a lot of explanations. I've frankly, Spencer, never heard an explanation that I find entirely persuasive. And so to me, it's just one of those mysteries. How did we get to where we are today? I don't really know for sure, but this is the world that we're in. Excuse me. If those decisions are made locally, is there a part of Texas, because Texas is bigger than the UK, is there a part of Texas where you see this more than other parts? Oh, absolutely. That's an excellent question. And Texas has 254 counties. Um, I don't know what a county is equivalent to in the in the UK, yeah, but it's, it's, uh, it's pretty pretty similar. They're, they're pretty similar. Yeah. Okay. Similar. So, 254 counties in Texas. Of those 254, 150 have never sent even a single person to death row. Okay. So, more than half the counties in Texas have not sent even a single person. Of all of the counties in Texas, there are 10 counties that are responsible for 90% of all of the executions. Okay, I'm in Houston. Houston is in Harris County. If Harris County were a state, a state, it would rank number two in terms of the total number of executions behind what? Just behind the rest of Texas, but ahead of Virginia, which would be in third place. So yes, the answer to your question is that if you take Houston and Dallas and Austin and Fort Worth, and Corpus Christi, which is down in the valley, and Amarillo, which is up um, in the Panhandle, and San Antonio, which is in central Texas. If you take that half dozen cities, then you have accounted for about 90% of all of the executions and all of the death sentences in the state. I kind of have this vision, as you explain this, um, of being a kid and watching um, the Dukes of Hazard and having that character Boss Hogg and Roscoe B. Coltrane as the, the police officer, as these kind of bumbling idiots that but made the rules up as they went along. Um, and forgive me for having that kind of, you know, that visual on it, but are, the, are these people fit to make these types of decisions? And, how, you know, if it's been for years and years this way, obviously there's been generations of it, but is it is it a cultural thing in the, that area? I think that it used to be more of a cultural thing than it was. So 30 years ago, district attorneys are elected officials. They're politicians, they run for office. And so you would have district attorneys in these big cities where people are worried about crime who would run for office and they would say, I'm gonna to be tough on crime and tough on crime means I'm in favor of the death penalty. And if somebody kills somebody, I'm gonna pursue a death penalty in that case. And so it became baked into the political culture 
in these big cities 30 years ago when people were really worried about crime. Crime has, of course, been going down for the last generation, not just in jurisdictions that have the death penalty, but actually it's been going down even more steeply in jurisdictions that don't. But I think that that attitude towards crime was already set in stone in a bunch of big cities in Texas. And as a result of that, I think politicians, even if they're against the death penalty, if they're running for district attorney, I think that they're scared to say that they're against the death penalty because they think, I think that they're wrong about this, but they think that if they say they're against the death penalty, they're going to lose. And I think that would have been true 15 or 20 or 25 years ago. I don't really think that it's true now, but I think that politicians, you know, politicians are like the French always fighting the last war. They're always running in the last campaign. And and so I think that at some point there will be somebody running for district attorney in one of these big cities, Houston, Dallas, Austin, who says, wait a minute, the population has changed here. The demographics of the state have changed. I don't need to say I'm in favor of this anymore. And I think that that will be very significant. I think that'll probably happen in the next three, four, five years, but it hasn't happened yet. And I think that's why the big cities continue to send so many people to death row. Okay, so let me take you something different but the same in my mind if you take your whole gun thing that goes on in america you had barack obama that was trying to change the rules around people owning guns and you know that the gun owners were saying look it's, guns don't kill people keep people with guns keep, kill people and then there, there was the people saying you know no one needs to carry a gun for goodness sake what, what that's only you know that's looking for trouble he had literally with his NRA, isn't it? He had, he had very little success because of the, the power of the NRA to be able to change the laws and the rules really around gun ownership in any great way. Do you think there's been a lot of resistance from people that are in that type of presidential position? There's been lots of resistance against them wanting to try and change that type of law, the, the death penalty? I do. I think that they are simply worried about political consequences. And as I say... I think that it probably made sense to worry about those political consequences a number of years ago. I don't think it does anymore. I think the proof that I'm probably right about that is that even though the number of executions has remained, it's gone down a lot, but Texas continues to execute people. The, the number of people who are being sent to death row on an annual basis all over the US, but including in Texas, has, has plummeted. So 30 years ago, for example, we in my line of work, we call them new arrivals. So those are new arrivals on death row. So 30 years ago, there would be 35, 40, in one year, there were 43 new arrivals in a single year. I mean, imagine that, that's, that's almost one person every week arriving on death row in Texas. And of course, eventually those people are going to be executed. Well, for the last four years, the numbers have been nine, eight, eight, and six. So we've gone from 35 or 40 a year to the single digits. And that's happened in Texas and it's also happened everywhere else. And I think that what that indicates is that the people who actually make the decision, which are the jurors, right? It's not the elected judges and it's not the district attorneys and it's not the attorney general and it's not the governor and it's not the president. The people who actually make the decision, I think don't think we need this punishment anymore. And at the same time that I think that jurors are recognizing that we don't need this punishment. They've, of course, become very focused on something that I know you talked about with a guest in one of your earlier episodes, the possibility that we're sending innocent people 
to death row. Just imagine if you're a juror in a case and you make a mistake in concluding that the defendant is guilty and you sentence that person to death and you find out five years, 10 years, 15 years later that the person was innocent. You know, you've basically participated in, in a murder. You've made a decision to have an innocent person be executed. And I think that jurors have become so sensitive to the flaws and weaknesses in the criminal justice system that they're much more reluctant to send people to death row than they were when they believed that the system got it right all of the time. Mm, good point. Good point. Okay, let, let, let's let's just talk about people that, that that are convicted and the percentages because I've, I've I've got some understanding of this. The amount of people because there's more people in in jail in the states than there is anywhere else. I mean, it's crazy the numbers. Uh, um, the 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 industry of penality and stuff is is blows my mind. That does. That's a whole other conversation, I think. But. People going to jail for crimes they didn't commit. The, the, the numbers that I was given is that they say that about 5% of all people across the the jail, the jail system in America, um, in penitentiaries, are, are actually innocent. Would you say that's a fair estimate? I think it's a conservative estimate. I think that the estimates range from about 4% up into about 8 or 9%. Uh, 5% is pretty conservative. I think it's a safe guess. I myself have, as I said, represented about 110 people. And in my career, there are eight people who I've represented who I believe are innocent. Um, uh, three of them, we got out of prison altogether. So three of them got out of prison. Um, that leaves five of the remaining five. Uh, one of them died in prison um, of natural causes. And I believe that if he had not died, we ultimately would have gotten him out of prison. That leaves four of the remaining four. Three have been executed because I was unable to persuade the people whose opinion matters more than mine that they were innocent and one of them is still alive. So just in my own experience, the random number of people who I've represented coupled with the number who I think is innocent really fits with that estimate of about 5%. Okay. I have a friend of mine that has a very weird um, job and their job is embalming dead bodies. And I, th I couldn't think of anything worse personally, but she thinks it's an incredibly good thing and positive thing to do to help people that have lost their loved ones um, present their, the, the, their dead body in the nicest possible way, embalming, dressing, you know, makeup and all that kind of stuff. And so she thinks she's doing something really positive, but I, I could never get my head around it. Because of, because of TV and movies, your job or your career it's kind of sexy, isn't it, to the outside world? It's kind of it's kind of sexy to be that kind of criminal lawyer that's fighting for justice and stuff like that. But I'm 100% sure you'll be able to confirm this. This must take a massive toll on your emotions when you work so closely with somebody and you, you know and you're fighting for them and you don't win. Can you give me some examples or just tell me about how that kind of stuff feels for you? Yes, First, can I can I can I start with your embalming story because um, <laughs> yeah, I think that I I I think that it reminded me of something that I wanted to tell you that I think you'll be interested in and I hope your your listeners are interested in as well. When people get sent to death row in Texas, um, they no longer ever have what are called contact visits with anybody. They can visit people um, if the people are approved to visit them. 
and obviously including their lawyers, but they're behind glass and so they can't touch them. And so unless they're being examined by um, a doctor in what's called a contact visit room, a psychologist or something like that, where their lawyer will also be, or unless they have a court hearing where I'm able to sit next to him and put my arm around his shoulders, from the time that he arrives on death row until the time that he's executed, the only people who touch him are prison guards. And I don't think that your typical human being thinks very much about what it's like to not touch people anymore. I think probably because of COVID and the fact that people are staying home, people have a better sense of it now than they did maybe a year ago. But so much of, of human interaction is touching from shaking hands, which is very formal to putting your arm around somebody to hugging um, a friend of yours. And these inmates don't get that anymore. And I had a, I had a client um, 15 years ago or so, and he had married a woman after he had already arrived on death row. This is a different phenomenon that maybe we'll talk about later on. It happens more often than you would think. And my client had married a woman after he was on death row. She, she was European. She was living in Germany at the time, and she would come over to the States four or six times a year and rent a little hotel room where death row is and go see him three consecutive days for the maximum amount of hours that she was allowed to see him, which at that time was four hours per day. And when he finally got executed, uh, she had him recovered by the funeral home. She had him embalmed and she had an open casket at his funeral that the only people who were at were me, another lawyer on my team, this woman and a cousin of the guy who'd been executed. And she told me that the reason that she wanted to have this service, even though there wasn't really even anybody who would be going to the service, was because she wanted an opportunity to touch him because she'd been married to him for 11 years and had never, had never touched him. So in, in a way, Spencer, that encapsulates my answer to your question, which is that you get to know these people, you know, I mean, I, I represent my clients anywhere from six or eight months to, I think the longest guy I represented, I represented for over 11 years. And so, you know, these people really well. I sometimes tell my wife that I know my clients better than I know her because part of our work involves constructing a family tree for our clients that we like to go back three generations and then interviewing everybody on the tree, you know, mom, dad, uh, aunts, uncles, cousins, brothers, sisters, friends, every teacher, every prison guard, everybody who my client has ever known, I want to go talk to because I'm just trying to learn everything I can in order to explain how this person who came into the world the same way we did is somebody who one day kill somebody. How does that, how does that happen? You know? And so you just know these people, I want to say intimately. I mean, you know them intimately. And so when the person finally gets executed, you're not just losing a client, you're losing somebody that you have a really deep and meaningful human relationship with. And it used to be very, very hard for me. I think that it's less hard now 
not not so much because I've gotten used to it. You don't get, you don't get used to it. But um, I've 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 been married now for 24 years, and so my wife is quite a pillar, and we have a son, and he's 20, and he's quite a pillar. Um, I've had people who I hire after they have maybe worked for me as an intern for two years, and then they graduate from law school and they want to keep doing death penalty work, and I hire them. And the morning after our first execution, they come into my office and they quit. And it's because when they're working on the cases as a student, it's just one of several things that they're doing. They do their homework assignment for class and then they spend some time working on the case and they're sad when the client gets executed, but it's not something that represents a colossal failure. And then they come to work for me and it's all they're doing. All they're doing is trying to keep this person alive. And then you don't. And I've, I've, I've literally had three people who the very day after the first execution that they worked on come into my office and say, I'm sorry, I can't do this anymore. And it's because you don't know, even if you've worked on these cases as a student, even if you've worked on them as an intern, you just don't know how you're going to react when it's actually your full-time job, when it's the only thing you're doing and your client, your friend, this person who you know, whose family you know, uh, is executed. I've stood next to I've stood next to mothers and wives and sons and daughters and brothers and sisters during executions and stood next to them as they're watching their family member get executed, still unable to touch the person, still unable to comfort the person. Is, is, it, is it like we see in the movies? Does it happen like that? How, how does it happen? Yeah, it is, I think, part of the mythology of the way the death penalty works is there's two major pieces to the mythology, in my view, that prop it up. Uh, one piece is that every part of the system gets to deflect responsibility to some other part of the system. So if you're a juror, you can say, I'm just one of 12 people, and there's going to be these judges behind me. If you're the trial judge, you say, oh, there's the appellate court judges. If you're the prison warden who's got to carry out the execution, you say some judge has ordered me to do this. Everybody is in a position where they can deflect the weight of the moral responsibility to somebody else. And I think that's one part of the reason that the system survives. The other part is because the violence of it, and I don't use the word violence lightly. This is the state that is putting to death a human being, not, not on the battlefield, not in the heat of the moment in a police shootout. It's an orchestrated um, act that's choreographed and practiced. And a person who is, at the moment that he is executed, harmless. He's, he's lashed down to a gurney is executed, it's a violent act. And yet that violence is very well disguised by the manner of death. I don't know if they have it on TV anymore. They used to have on TV. I used to amuse myself late at night when I couldn't sleep by watching 
something called the medical channel. And the medical channel was this channel where they would show surgeons performing surgeries. So you could watch somebody do a, do a, a, what do you call it? A coronary bypass. You could watch somebody do a hip replacement. And when you watch an execution, that's what it reminds me of. The curtain opens and the inmate is tied down with thick leather straps to what is effectively a gurney and has IV lines in both arms, one primary set and then a redundant set in case something goes wrong with the first one. It's covered with a sheet and the warden gives a signal to the people who start the flow of chemicals running, but there's nothing dramatic about it. It's not like a gun goes off or a bell is rung or anything like that. The warden communicates silently to these executioners who are in another room who you can't see and they push a button and then the machine pushes the plunger down into the syringe. And so you start administration of the drug and it's a barbiturate. And so it makes the person go to sleep. And so when you witness an execution, you are witnessing something that looks very much like somebody falling asleep in the next room. Person closes his eyes, might snore a little bit, might gurgle a little bit, the way people sometimes make noises when they're sleeping. And then there's stillness. And then you stand there for some number of minutes. And then the warden makes a signal to a doctor who comes into the room, who listens for a pulse, who checks to see if the pupils will dilate. And then if there are no signs of life, declares the time of death. It's not like watching somebody die in a firing squad, which is violent visibly violent or watching somebody die in an electric chair where the body convulses or die in a gas chamber where the body convulses. It's like watching somebody go to sleep before a surgical procedure. And I think that part of the reason that the punishment continues to be used in the United States is because the death penalty jurisdictions in the United States have so successfully masked the violence of what this procedure is. Why do you have to be there? I don't have to be there and I prefer not to be there. I'm only there if my client asks me to be. I never want them to ask me to be because I don't want to be there. If we're actually still working on the appeals at the very last moment, which probably happens in at least half of the cases that we work on, then I couldn't be there even if my client wanted me to because my office is in Houston and the executions happen in a town called Huntsville, which is about a two hours drive from my office. But if all of the appeals are over and done with, um, then if my client asks me to, I go, but I hope that they won't ask me to because I don't want to be there. But if they ask me, I'm not going to say no because I fundamentally think that nobody should have to die alone and it would be much worse for one of my clients to have to die alone because I just don't want to feel the anxiety or the discomfort uh, of being there. The people who are executed are allowed to have, I 
think, I don't remember the number, I think that they're allowed to have three witnesses plus a spiritual advisor, so four altogether. So most of my clients would rather have their family members there than one of their lawyers, but not all of them. Some of them prefer to have nobody there. Some of them don't want anybody to have to witness what's going, what's going to happen. When, when one witnesses an execution, you get to Huntsville, which is where the executions happen. And then you assemble, the witnesses assemble in this administrative building, the witnesses who are there to support the person who's being executed assemble at a different time and in a different location from the witnesses who are there because they were related to the murder victim. Texas allows the family members of the murder victim to attend the execution if they wish to. And then there are members of the press that are there. And each of those three groups is led into the execution chamber separately uh, by guards and then are placed in separate uh, rooms. I'm not in the same room as the family members of the murder victim. And then the curtain opens. When the curtain opens, the IV lines are already inserted and the warden will read the death warrant, which is always a bit surreal because it's this formal order from a judge directing a warden to kill somebody. It says, inject a chemical or combination of chemicals into the name of the person sufficient to cause death, which is just a bizarre thing to find in a judicial order. And then the uh, warden uh, will ask the inmate if he has any final words and some don't and some do. There's a microphone that is hanging down from the ceiling more or less over the inmate's face so that the final statement can be more easily heard by the people in the witness rooms. And then at the end of the statement, if it's rambling on for too long, the warden will cut the inmate off. If it's not rambling on for too long at the end of the statement, the inmate will indicate that he's through with the statement and the warden, as I was describing earlier, communicates a signal to the people in the execution chamber and the execution starts. And then after the doctor declares the time of death, the guards at the prison take the witnesses back out the same way uh, they came in, once again, separating them in time so that the witnesses don't, don't run into one another. It has a very tribal feel to it. I'm a member of one tribe, you're a member of another tribe. We can't be in the same room together because who knows what we might start saying or doing to one another. It has that feel to it. In, in, the, in the old days when I started doing this, the executions occurred at midnight. The execution warrant would command the warden to kill a certain person on a certain date before sunrise. So that date obviously starts right past midnight 
and then sunrise is depending on what time of year it is five or six or seven hours later and so that would be the execution window and so if the execution happened without any interference from the courts or anything like that it would happen at 12 30 or one o'clock in the morning and you would come outside the prison and it would be the dead of night they eventually moved the executions now they occur at six o'clock so now the warden gets an order from a judge that says to kill somebody on a certain date after 6 p.m. So that execution window opens at six and then closes at midnight. And so now when you come out of the prison, particularly if it's during daylight saving time during the summer when the days are long and it doesn't get dark until eight o'clock or 8.30 or even nine o'clock at night, you might come out of the prison after an execution and you walk out into the bright daylight and you're in this city where the people don't even know an execution has happened. The prison is right across the street from a university called Sam Houston State University. And there might be college students out there playing Frisbee. You might see families jogging down the street because it's a very wide boulevard that has a line of trees in the middle of it. It's really physically very beautiful right outside the prison. It's two blocks away from the downtown of the city where People might be having a meal at a restaurant or a beer at a bar. And it's just bizarre because you come out of the prison and you've just, watched, you've just watched the state carry out an execution. And then you come out the prison and, and nobody even knows that it's happened. It's this momentous, it's this momentous grave act that the government has carried out and nobody even knows about it. Wow. It's very surreal to me. Thank you for sharing that. That's that's fascinating. I could talk a lot about that, but let's talk about something a bit more positive. Let's talk about Anthony Graves. Yeah. That's one side. Let's let's talk about let's talk about the work that you did, how you helped him, and just yeah, just give us a bit. The, t- tell us that story because I think that's that's probably the one that we know the best and uh, the world knows yeah. knows well. And, and I suppose that's, that's, that's your Super Bowl, isn't it? Yeah, he's, Anthony is, is you know, I mentioned earlier that, that three of our guys have walked out and, and um, one of them walked out and, and um, six or seven months after we proved that he was innocent and six or seven months later uh, died when he crashed his pickup truck into a tree. Um, no. And, a, oh, you know, I mean, he'd been out seven months and, and, uh, and, and died in a single car accident. Um, a second got out. Um, he's, he's now in Mexico and I hope that he'll be okay. Although I'm not confident because he was so mentally destroyed by the experience of being on death row that I don't know if he'll ever really be able to recover. Um, and, and I, in, in the context of those two stories, Anthony Graves' resiliency is all the more remarkable. This is a guy who he went to death row and he never wanted to be comfortable. He never wanted to have enough blankets during the winter so that he felt warm. Um, he never wanted the food to be good. And the reason is because he never wanted to get used to it. He was always committed to getting out of there. And he, he, he wrote as he was, at the time that he, 
that he wrote my organization, who was represented by somebody else who we ended up um, working with. And, and I went to go see him and I never, I never want to tell my clients that they're going to be executed because you never know for sure, but you have a sense as a lawyer of what the probabilities are. And you have a sense as a lawyer of which issues are good issues and which are not so good and which you're going to be able to prove and which you're not going to be able to prove. And I felt like we were never going to be able to prove that Graves was innocent. And the team that was conducting the fact investigation was a team that was made up of both law students from the University of Houston and journalism school, journalism students from the University of St. Thomas, which is another university in Houston. And the woman who was leading the, the investigation is a woman named Nicole Caceres, who is both a journalism professor and also a lawyer. And I told the Nicole, I thought that she really should prepare the students on her team for the worst because I just did not think they would ever be able to prove that Graves was innocent. Um, wasn't a DNA case. There weren't going to be any other eyewitnesses who could prove that he didn't do it. It was going to be a matter of having to deconstruct every single piece of evidence that the state had used to convict him. Because unless you destroy every single last piece of the evidence that the state used to convict him, there's going to be some judge somewhere who says, okay, you destroyed 99 out of 100 pieces of evidence, but there's still that 100th of the piece of evidence. And so I'm not gonna declare this person innocent. And I just did not think it would be possible to destroy every last piece of the evidence the state had used. And I could not be happier <laughs> to um, have been wrong in my prediction. Um, and so the first thing that happened in his case was that his conviction was set aside and he went back to the county jail and the, the county was gonna have to decide whether they were gonna try him again. And then the county appointed a special prosecutor to look at the whole case with a new set of eyes and she concluded there was no evidence whatsoever that pointed in the direction of his guilt. And, and he, he walked out and the day that he walked out, he was as, as centered and as upbeat and positive and optimistic as the day before he ever got arrested in the first place. He just managed to survive that environment in a way that very few people are able to. How, how old was he when he came out? Because he was inside for 18 years. So how old yeah, was he? Was, he, was, he was in his uh, late 30s. What, when he came out or when he went inside? No, when he came out. When he came out, he was in his early 20s when he went in. Wow. Yeah. That's like and so he so so he had a son who, you know, his his son grew up, you know. I mean, he he goes into prison and he's got a toddler and he comes out of prison and he's got a young adult. And and that you know, that's what happens. He goes in and nobody's in it invented cell phones and you know, he he gets out and somebody hands him an iPhone kind of thing. There 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 are people that, and again I was told this by Nick when he got out. He said that, that there's people that 
when you've been on death row and you do get out, a lot of people find it really, like you've expressed, find it really hard to cope. And their head's been messed up so badly by the system that, that suicide plays a role in some of their lives or you know, a destructive approach to anything that they do. How, how do you, do you do any work to prepare people or literally as they come out, it's kind of like hugs, high fives and let's go for a slice of cake and then you're on your way? Um, so my group does not do anything to prepare people who come out. We have worked with some groups. They're primarily church groups that they shouldn't have to be church groups. There should be, there's, there's, Look, if you if you have five percent of the prison population that's innocent, and some number of those people are going to be proved innocent, are going to come out, then it, I mean, in Texas, for example, there, Texas alone, well, the whole U.S. there, the prison population. You were talking earlier, Spencer, about how crazy it is, how many people are in prison in the U.S. and in the entire United States. If you count state prisons, federal prisons, state and local jails, the number of people incarcerated is approaching two million. Two million. So, so, so 1% of 2 million, um, 1% is 20,000 people. Okay. 5% is a hundred thousand people. That's a lot of people. So if, if let's just say half of the innocent people get out, that's 50,000 people who are getting out of prison this year because they're innocent and they, they don't have any ability to live in society. They've been living in a structured environment where Somebody tells them what time they're eating breakfast, what time they're eating lunch, what time they're eating dinner, what time the lights go off, what time the lights go on, um, what time they have to do everything. And there are people who they don't have driver's licenses. Um, they don't have job skills. They don't have jobs. They, don't have, they certainly don't have a car, so they can't get to the office. And yet we don't have any social safety net that is preparing these people to re-enter society. This is all the more true, by the way, for people who aren't innocent, but who nevertheless complete serving, they, they serve their prison term. They're sentenced to 10 years. So, so, a minute. so, so you go into jail, you haven't done the crime, you get exonerated, you come out of jail and the, 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 the state gives you nothing. No, they give you, they get, depending on what state you're in, the state gives you money for each year that you were wrongfully incarcerated. How much money? Well, in Texas, it's actually a lot. Texas is now surprisingly the most generous state in the country, and it gives people $80,000 a year for every year that they were uh, wrongfully incarcerated, incarcerated after they were, after they were innocent. I used to, I can, you can't do this anymore because the prison doesn't do tours of death row <clears throat> anymore, but I used to take my, my students in my death penalty clinic to death row, and, and the warden at that time would take my students on a tour of the, of the unit. And after we would leave and we would get back in the car and we would drive down the street to a little cafe and sit around and have a coffee or a beer and talk about what we, we had just seen. At the time, I think the compensation was $50,000 a year rather than 80. And, and I would say, how many of you are willing to spend one year in there? for $50,000. And of course, nobody is. It's, it's, prisons are brutal, violent places. And if we send people there and they didn't do anything, we should pay them money. But there's not anybody in his right mind who would agree to endure that experience for the amount that we pay them. But in Texas, we now do pay them $80,000 a year. But you give somebody money, 
okay? And fortunately, Anthony Grays, for example, is somebody who has a very good support network, but he's unusual in that regard. So, so, so Anthony had people helping him get a phone. Anthony had people helping him find a place to live. Anthony had people helping him put away that money so that he didn't burn through it the, the, the way lots of guys do where they come out, they, they've like, they've never seen $100,000 before. They think $100,000, that's gonna last me the rest of my life. And then they buy mom a car and they pick up the bar tab for everybody in the bar for the next month and that's it, they've spent it. And they, and they don't have job skills. And so, yes, we give money to people who are wrongfully uh, incarcerated, but we don't prepare them for how to save that money. We don't prepare them for how to earn more money. We don't prepare them for how to get a job and hold a job. And the government should be doing all of those things. But you asked me, so what we do, and the answer is my group doesn't do that. We're focused on representing them while they're in prison, but we have relationships with organizations that focus on what they call re-entry, which is prisoner re-entry. And sadly, even though in my view, it should be the government that's doing that because it's the government's fault that these people were in prison in the first place for something that they didn't do. We leave it all to church groups and other types of nonprofits to provide that absolutely critical service. This is a fantastic conversation and one I'm getting so much out of and I'm aware that I'm conscious of time. Um, I want to talk to you about your books. Tell, tell me how you got into writing and tell me, tell, tell me about what the books are about. So obviously I've been teaching at University of Houston for a long time. So I spent, you know, 15 years doing academic writing. And about 10 years ago, I decided I wanted to write a non-academic book. I decided I wanted to write a book about what it's like to be a death penalty lawyer that wasn't for a scholarly journal or university press or anything like that. So I wrote a book called Autobiography of an Execution that was what it's like to be a death penalty lawyer uh, in Texas. It focused on one particular case, um, but it, it, it also focused on, you were asking me earlier, Spencer, about the psychological toll. And I talked about my wife and son and how I really lean heavily on them. And so the book was also about that. It was about how I bring my work home with me and that I am able to keep doing it because of that sort of support. And so I wrote that book and it was, it was really well received. And, and so a few years after, and so that was autobiography of an execution. And a few years after that, I thought, well, well, you know what, I'm going to write another book because in autobiography, I, I focused on a client of mine who I believe was innocent. He was one of the people who I mentioned earlier who I think was innocent but was executed. And I wanted to focus on that because obviously the burden of representing somebody who you think is innocent is a lot heavier than the burden of representing somebody who you think isn't in the sense that when the person gets executed, if the person committed the crime, you think, shit, man, I wish you hadn't done this and we wouldn't be in this position. Whereas if the person didn't do it, you can't blame your client. The only person you can blame is yourself. Um, so anyway, that's what that first book was about. And I want to write a second book that was about a client of mine who wasn't innocent because I felt it was really important to try to convey that we have this image of these people who were executing as these monsters, as not even human beings but that image is really wrong. And so I wrote a second book that was about a client who's not innocent. And there were also two other themes to that book because at the same time that I was representing this guy, my father-in-law was dying from metastatic melanoma and he and I were very, very close. And then my, our, our dog, who was my son's first dog was also dying from liver failure. And all of those things were happening at the same time. And 
So I wrote that book and both of the books I will say were, I, I think very favorably and mostly fairly reviewed, but I, I had some reviews of both of them that irritated me a bit. And the reason is that the reviewers said that you couldn't fact check my books, that here I was writing this memoir and you couldn't fact check my books. And it was true, you couldn't. And the reason you couldn't, you asked me before we came on, Spencer, whether there was anything that you weren't allowed to ask me. And I said, no, you can ask me anything, but there might've been certain things if you would ask me, I might've said, I can't answer that. And the reason is that a lawyer has a duty of confidentiality and that duty continues even after the client is dead. So if I learn something about one of my clients and it's not in any public document that I file, it's confidential and I can't share it with anybody. I can't share it with my wife, with my son, with you. Certainly couldn't share it in a book. And so how am I gonna write a book about my clients that I wanna talk about all of this confidential stuff because it's what makes them human. You know, It's the confidential stuff that makes them human. And so what I would do is I would just change enough facts that you could not sit down with a computer and Google the facts and figure out who I was talking about. So I'll just give you an example. I would say that the crime occurred in Del Rio when maybe it really occurred in San Antonio. Or I would say that my client was 26 when he committed the crime, maybe he was really 34. Um, or, or I would say, that there were four victims and really maybe there were three victims. So I would do those sorts of things so that if you just tried to type the facts into a search engine, you wouldn't get the right case. And I view those facts as completely irrelevant. It doesn't matter whether it happened in Del Rio or San Antonio. To me, that's not what is at all meaningful about the story. But I had these reviews that would criticize me for changing those sorts of facts because they said, oh, well, we can't fact check it. I said, well, you know, sometimes you just have to take people at their word. You know, I mean, th this is what happened and I'm just not going to tell you where it happened. And so I was complaining to my agent one day and I was saying, I just don't know how I can get through these people's minds that I have to change these facts. I said, the only thing I'm going to be able to do to avoid this sort of criticism is write a novel. And he said, oh, I think you should do that. Do you have one in mind? And so I did. I had this novel in mind, and it's my most recent book. It's called uh, Confessions of an Innocent Man. Um, and it's about a guy who is innocent, who gets sent to death row, and then what happens to him while he's there. And I wrote that book not because I was one of these people who, when I was in college, planned on writing the great American novel, but because I just was so frustrated that people were criticizing me for making things up that I figured the only solution here is for me to write a book where I can make things up and nobody can criticize me for it. <laughs> and the Wall Street Journal said that was one of the best books of 2019 as well. So you've definitely got some plaudits, haven't you? Yeah, it was it was it was nice. I mean, it was it was it was very flattering. And um, yeah, so it was it was it was it was it was nice. It's got some it's got some nice attention too. and one of the characters in that book um, I really, really liked a lot. And so I'm now working on a second book that kind of revolves around, around that character. So it's, it's been fun, but like you, I'll say Spencer, you know, that like you, I, I, I think, I think a writer is somebody who hates to write, <laughs> you know, you sit down and it's just painful, painful, painful. And you like it when it's all done. It's like, it's like living you know, in a really snowy climate where the reason you like the snow is because you get to come in out of the snow and sit next to the fireplace. You know, the writing is the same. It's the same way. You like it when you're not doing it anymore. Couple of questions before we finish. Number one, what, what in your career, what's your proudest moment? Mm. Um, I think that my uh, proudest moment in my career was forming the 
relationship that I formed with my uh, very first client. When I started representing death row inmates, I wasn't even against the death penalty. And so it was hard for me to imagine that I was going to be able to actually form a human connection with somebody who was facing a punishment that I wasn't even sure I was against. And yet I did. And one led to two and two led to four and four led to 10. And the next thing you know, I'm a middle-aged guy who's a death penalty lawyer, but I would have to say that one of my proudest moments was really forging that connection in that very first case. And when you look at your career, can I ask how old you are? Yes, I'm 60, uh, 61. Okay, so you're relatively young. Who inspires you? Wow. Um, so my father was a lawyer. My father's still alive. He's 92. Um, and I would say that the first person who inspires me is my father. But I also have had, I would say, three different teachers in my life who at different points in my life, at different critical points in my life, who inspired me. When I was in high school, I had a debate coach who also taught political literature. And I think I learned from him to not care what other people think about what you're doing. That if you believe that something is the right thing to do, that's what you should be doing. Um, and then I had a teacher in college who I was a, I thought I was gonna be a history teacher before I went to law school. And I had a history in college whose field was the Protestant Reformation and I'm Jewish. So I didn't know anything about the Protestant Reformation, but I took this class from him and, and he, I think, taught me the value of being able to put yourself inside somebody else's worldview, because that's what this whole class was. It was putting myself somebody who had no exposure to Calvinism or Lutheranism or the music of the Reformation Church inside that world. And then finally, when I was in law school, I, was, I had constitutional law from a man and I became very close to him who had been the assistant attorney general for civil rights during the Kennedy administration and had been really responsible for writing the Civil Rights Act of 1964 and then helping get it enacted. And so I think I learned from him that human beings can change society, that you can really change even those aspects of society that are deeply rooted and that you think can never be changed because he had done it, you know, and and he had done it just by the force of his will and the richness of his imagination and the depth of his intelligence. And I think that I came out of law school because of my exposure to him, thinking that it was possible to use the tools of law in a way to make society better. David Dow, thank you so much for taking the time to come and talk to us this evening. Um, yeah, brilliant. It's been so much fun listening to your stories. You've, you've, you've had me on the edge of my seat and you've had me really living those moments with you. So thank you for being so honest and sharing that with us. And uh, yeah, I hope that you have enjoyed being on the podcast as much as we've enjoyed having you. I've enjoyed it very much, Spencer, and I'm actually honored to have had the chance to talk to you. And I'm hoping that once the world stops wobbling, I'll be able to come across the pond and we'll be able to meet in person one day.
just 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 before we finish let's just get those names of those books just repeated again what's what's each book called the first memoir is called the autobiography of an execution and it was published in uh 2010 and the next book was called things i've learned from dying and it was published in 2014 and then the most recent book is called confessions of an innocent man and it was published last year in 2019 excellent stuff and how can people find you online if they want to find you do you have a website social media you can find me at davidardow.com or you can find me on twitter at at drdow or you can go to the university of houston law center and find me there excellent stuff so guys who are listening to this if you want to get hold of david's books you know now where to look can they get them on amazon yes you can get them on amazon and i'm also a I'm a, I'm a big booster of local independent bookstores. So if you have one in your community, help them hang on during this very difficult economic time. Yeah, for sure. For sure. David, thank you so much. I really appreciate your time. My pleasure, Spencer. Nice talking to you. No, I didn't. Did you know that? It's, it's today's the 10 year anniversary of Anthony being released. No, I did not know that. Wow. How do you know that? Okay. It's 10 years to this day. Wow. I'm going to have to call him as soon as I get off this call with you. <laughs> that was pretty neat. Thanks for telling me that. Thanks for telling me that. I'm going to, I'm going to tell, say, Anthony, congratulations. I just found out from Spencer Lodge and his producer that it's a 10 year anniversary. <laughs> Someone in Dubai I've been yeah. chatting to just yeah. told me that. Exactly. <laughs> Awesome. Well, look, thank you so much for your time. Take it easy. Nice. You're very welcome. You. Likewise. Nice. Nice talking to you. Bye bye. All the best. Bye bye. So it's always important to mention people that you partner with and partners for the podcast are Najahi events and Najahi tribe. Now, Najahi sounds like an unusual word and it is, but it's Arabic for my success. And Najahi have brought some of the world leading public speakers, motivational speakers, inspirational leaders across to Dubai over the course of the years, and Abu Dhabi, mind you. And Najahi brought, I don't know, people like Tony Robbins, ever heard of him? Okay, Nick Vujicic, no arms, no legs, no worries. Lisa Nichols, Prince EA, Jay Shetty, uh, Alicia Keys, and people like this. And they bring them in and they run events. And from those events, we go and we learn from these incredible people. On top of that, they launched the Najahi tribe recently, where they have a collective of the world's greatest trainers that literally you can join, become a member of, take advantage of a training from all of these different people, like real experts in their field. I've got a sneaky suspicion I might be one of them as well. But anyway, <laughs> hopefully you will go and check them out for me because you enjoy these episodes of the podcast. And remember, it's always team effort and I can't do it without the support of these people. So go check out Najahi Events, N-A-J-A-H-I events.com. I'll see you soon. Sometimes I feel like I've bidden off more than I can chew when I produce these podcasts. Sometimes I, I, I feel like maybe maybe I've got I've gone a guess too far. Maybe I'm doing this podcast for me and not for you. Maybe it's, it's my fascination, my interest, my curiosity. But having an opportunity to sit down with a published author, a criminal defense lawyer, a death row um, lawyer that fights for the rights of people that are innocent, in jail and when he said between four and nine percent of people in jail are in there and they're innocent of their crimes it says a lot about a man 
But for somebody, as you just listened to, to take us on that journey, that harrowing story of what it's like, and yet also to take us on a story and tell us about the positives, the wins, the successes, and how he's inspired to do what he does, just makes me think what a decent human being he is. Hopefully you've enjoyed this episode and you've taken something from it. It's been valuable to you in some way. It's got you to think differently maybe. Maybe understand a system that maybe is broken even over in Texas and the States. Maybe it's just something that you'll, you'll never, ever, ever be able to put your head around and just answer the why. I think David was a great guest on the show. Hopefully you've enjoyed it. Let me know. Give me some feedback. Tell me that you've enjoyed it. Tell me that you've got something out of it. Tell me what, you, what resonated with you because that kind of stuff, I promise you, means the world to me. 